here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. It's the 14th of December, 2018, and it's 2 p.m. Central Time. Quick announcements this coming Monday, Orlean Curla of the California Eagle Forum will be on. That's Orlean Curla this coming Monday, December 17, and she's going to be talking about in-depth insights into the California fires. Things are not exactly as they appear, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm into the end of the second week of this show. Thanks again to Johnny Delirious for being on this past Wednesday to talk about alternative nutritional and medical modalities and how that fits into the larger picture. And, of course, I had a rerun this past Monday of Mickey Paletta. Anyway, today's guest is a friend of mine and someone who's very well schooled on monetary reform, particularly economic democracy, a.k.a. social credit. And this is what I've been promoting lately, ladies and gentlemen, about a different look at economics. Yes, the debt-free money system is a bad thing. Yes, private central banking and usury are certainly not positive developments in any way, shape, or form. But we have to look further. It's not enough just to end the Fed, or if you're in Canada, totally reform or end the Central Bank of Canada, or any central bank, or the Central Bank of the Central Banks, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. We can talk about the rogue characters. We can talk about the bad guys for a long time. But we have to reorient ourselves, figure out what we would do if we didn't have them, figure out how the monetary system is really supposed to work in the true just and moral sense. And no one better to explain that than Wallace Klink of Alberta, Canada. How are you doing, Wallace? Hi there, Mark. It's really nice to be with you. Yeah, the, your audio sounds good. I'm glad we went with Skype. At any rate... Um, the, um, this matter, of course, kind of lurks behind the scenes when we talk about the, the tyranny and the oppression and the suppression that goes on in our world in varying degrees across the, across the world. And we talk about, you know, all sorts of matters, uh, the constitutions of our respective nations. We have parliaments, we have republics, we have direct democracies like Switzerland and we talk about all these reforms, all these laws, but all of us know, at least the better informed among us know, that if we don't get the money thing right, not much else is going to go right. And Wallace, what you found, particularly where you've grown up and you've, you've done some farming there in Alberta, Canada, which is where you're from and you still live there, and you've, uh, you've uh, had some political science and economics uh, university training and whatnot, and I know you've done those things, and I know you, that you've lived sort of in the historical shadow of, of what used to be a social credit th- uh, government there in uh, in Canada at the provincial level back in the 
30s, if memory serves. But what is social credit slash economic democracy? Where did it come from? How did you get to know so much about it? And then we'll go from there. Well, uh, social credit originated with uh, Major Clifford U. Douglas uh, in Britain. He had been uh, an engineer that had worked on some a number of very large projects around the world, the Buenos Aires Railway and the London Post Office Tube. He worked for West British Westinghouse in India and so on. Uh, actually, it was in India when he um, he was had an opportunity frequently to talk with the comptroller of the British Westinghouse there. And this man had quite an interest in credit, and he was explaining to Douglas that the the whole thing is really based on credit. And Douglas was a bit bored with it at that time. But then later on, when he was involved in some of these projects, particularly in England, when they were working on the London Post Office tube system, they would be going along nicely. And then all of a sudden, they'd get in order to stop because they didn't have enough money. They had all the men and all the materials, all, all the physical requisites, but they didn't have money. And he thought that was a bit strange. But anyway, uh, that was one of the things that, uh, that uh, got him thinking. And then what really happened was the, he uh, also was the assistant director at the Royal Aircraft Works in Farnborough. In, uh, in England, and uh, they got into a costing model of some kind, and they asked Douglas to come in and try and resolve it for them. And during that period of his uh, inquiries, he, uh, he found that the business was generating costs and prices at a much greater rate of flow than it was paying out incomes. And he thought, well, that's interesting, although it would be expected. Uh, but still, how do you explain this? How could the economy work if it's generating far more costs and prices than it is paying out incomes? So anyway, he checked with about uh, about 100 other corporations in Britain, and he found the same situation was true in each case. Um except where perhaps maybe a business was going bankrupt, but generally that was the case. The system was generating costs and prices more rapidly in greater volume than it was paying out income. So there has to be something that intervenes to make the system work. And, of course, it's bank debt. The bank creates money in order to uh, finance the economy to keep it going. If you don't have enough purchasing power, then you go to the bank, and the bank will... Uh, obliged by giving you a loan. But when a bank makes a loan, it does not lend anybody's money. Banks do not lend money. You might have people. That's one of the key things that people must understand. Banks do not lend money. They are not in the business of doing that. They're in the business of creating and destroying credit. That And credit is their commodity. In other words, when they make a loan, they simply write up the amount, credit it to your account. The account follows the loan. And it is issued as a debt, a repayable debt. And that is the way that our money comes into being. Virtually all of our money comes into being through the action of the banks in creating loans. So um, that is uh, the way that um, functions presently. And uh, so, but what happens is when, when you go into debt to the bank, it means that you are mortgaging your future. You have to earn the money from future activities in order to pay for the actual um, the, the bank loan. And this is an inflationary charge that is set against future economic activities. Now, the thing of it is, if you look at 
money is an artificial thing. Money is something that we have fabricated as human beings. It's not something that simply came with us as as a natural thing. So we we have to ask the question whether or not our money system actually, as we have devised it or as, as the way it's grown or evolved, whether or not it actually reflects reality. It might not. The thing that is, if you think about any object that is produced, say a car, when that car is finished and on the market on the consumer for consumer purchase, the car has been paid for physically. The real cost of producing the car is the human and non-human energy materials that went into making the car. And if those real costs had not been met and fully met, there would be no car. So you have to True. ask Yes. Well, then why? Well, you have to ask yourself the question, if that's the case, why is there a residuum of debt, of financial debt, after a given program of production physically has been completed? It shouldn't be. If money, if real credit, if money actually matched physical credit, if, if, if the economy had sufficient income to meet all prices then things should work quite smoothly. But, of course, it doesn't work that way. We have to go into debt more and more, and because humans have, individual human consumers have to go into debt more and more, um, and, uh, we, and we can only earn by our uh, work. The government gets in the act and is having to borrow in order to create jobs and so on and so forth in order to keep people employed. Well, that again is, it doesn't make sense in an age of technology where technology is actually replacing human labor at a very, very rapid rate. In the United States, for instance, and I'm speaking from Canada here, but in the early 1800s, believe it or not, about 75% of the total workforce was actually engaged in producing food. And then later on, it was 50, 50%, and later on in the 1800s. And now I understand that it is probably possibly 3 or 4% of the workforce is actually required to produce the food that is needed in the United States of America. And you can see the, the drastic uh, efficiency that has been achieved through technology in this way. And, of course, it's spreading all over. They're saying that, Within 20 years or so, possibly 50% of the actual jobs in the United States may be eliminated by, uh, you know, automation and artificial intelligence. So um, that brings in an ethical aspect of it. What justifies consumption? We, we tend to go, and this is pretty strong in the United States, according to the Puritan work ethic. In other words, there's an idea that you shouldn't have anything unless you justify it by working. But if you've got machines doing the work for you, what is the rationale? What is the intelligence? What is the sanity of keeping people busy? Well, let's see, the way the system works, Mark, is that we as a society are not allowed to access what we have already produced until we produce something further. And if the system works that way now, uh, largely because of the replacement of, um, of non-labor costs in the economy, which grew greater and greater relative to, uh, to labor as a cost, uh, it, 
every advance in tech, technological efficiency is going to make the deficiency or the, or the gap between prices and um, and incomes even greater. So, in a way, in a way, the financial system literally sabotages every advance that is made in genuine physical efficiency, because you get a bigger and bigger gap between prices and incomes, and that means that you have to go further and further proportionately into debt in order to gain access to what you have produced. And that leads governments to get into the act in order to try and maintain full employment, which is a completely irrational goal. And they, of course, um, are led in more and more into... um, armaments production and that sort of thing, particularly because this very this very deficiency of purchasing power, and this, by the way, has it goes against orthodox economic theory, which has always said if you produce something, you liberate equivalent incomes and the whole thing is balanced. Well, it's not. It's, if you look around and see the debt load, you know that's definitely not a reasonable or rational explanation. Anyway, that's the way uh, the situation works, and... Um, and all nations, being short of purchasing power internally, are desperately trying to compensate for that deficiency of purchasing power, which leads them to have greater and greater internal debts. So what they do, you've heard the old expression, we live by our exports, which is, if you think about it, is a very strange conception. Every nation is not just trying to trade. Every nation is trying desperately to export more in value than they bring back because they want, they're actually giving away more of their physical asset wealth in exchange for a non, um, a non-physical item called credit. And they want to help balance their internal deficiency of, of uh, money with credits that are captured through an excess of exports. Well, that puts all nations at war with each other. In other words, international trade becomes not not trade but actual war because um, all nations are trying to compete and they will try to reduce their costs by going out and exploiting third world nations and to get resources and energy and so on and so forth. And of course, when their competitors see them doing that, they're trying to do the same thing and they come in, they clash and come into conflict with each other. In other words, the present financial system is a guarantee of war because it's only through increasing waste that we can generate uh, incomes in order to carry on. If I may interject, Wallace, uh, to kind of summarize and uh, expand upon what you're saying. So we have Major Douglas. He writes some books early in the 20th century, Economic Democracy, Social Credit, and others. He had worked in all all these functions you described. He sees that incomes that are paid out can never keep up with the pace or volume of prices and costs and debts, of course, resulting debts. Mm -hmm. And so we have this shortfall that is sometimes called the gap. And to fill that gap, nations and individuals borrow and they borrow money from the usurious debt-based banks as you say they don't actually loan money they just create and destroy credit mm-hmm. and then when that when things don't work well at the individual or societal level within national borders they seek foreign markets so they need more purses and wallets in foreign countries to buy the things that the local purses and wallets cannot buy within their own national borders 
Mm-hmm. So everybody everybody competes for natural resources and foreign markets overseas, and that inevitably leads to trade wars and battles for turf, i.e. resources and markets, and that inevitably leads to war. Therefore, uh, production for war uh, becomes a priority, and in fact, nations are on, in an almost constant state of war, or at least war readiness, precisely so their economies don't cave in due to the very defects you're talking about. Yes, and and actually in your country, America, the economy, I understand, is approximately 50%, if you can just let that sink in, 50% directly and indirectly involved in military expenditure. Now, it seems to me that is a very strange way to run a country. It's certainly... Uh, Indeed, it is very, very hazardous, very dangerous. You you have this brinkmanship with Russia and China that's always on the edge of breaking out. And so much of it can be traced back to these root causes that you're outlining and I'm reflecting and expanding upon. And mm-hmm. we're going to have a break, break here for the first commercials in about three minutes. We won't quite get into what the solution is yet. I want to kind of continue to describe the problem. And then as we get into the second half of the show, we can roll out. Wallace, what you and I have talked about off the air and what you've written about and I've written about as to what uh, conceivably and realistically are the solutions to this, uh, it might surprise a lot of people to hear what these solutions are. Uh, it might sound, sound counterintuitive to some. It may not. But when it comes to dealing with the banking and money issue, Wallace, and I'm sure you agree and I'm sure listeners agree, we all need to open our minds. We all need to be flexible Because if we don't solve this, as I said early in the show, if we don't get this right, nothing else is going to be right. You have to to analyze a a problem uh, before you can fix it. You can't just complain. You have to, in a disciplined manner, analyze the situation, determine what is happening, where we're going wrong, and what has to be done about it. Uh, Absolutely. A prognosis, as they call it in medicine, and we're coming up about two minutes on the break, but uh, Wallace, the um, uh, over the years, a lot of other people have expanded on what Douglas did. Uh, some books I've read, Jay Crate Larkin, From Debt to Prosperity, uh, Money, Questions and Answers by Father Charles E. Coughlin, all have elements and components of the truth. We, we have the Pilgrims of St. Michael, a Catholic order in Quebec, Canada, mm-hmm. that had Louis C. Van, and they published the Michael Journal. They've expounded well on social credit. So uh, the other countries this has been in, Canada, England, uh, what are some of the countries that have experienced some interest in economic democracy slash social credit? Well, of course, it, uh, as far as um, it was an intellectual movement in Britain and right into the 30s, and uh, from about 1718, uh, when Douglas wrote his first uh, article, well, it wasn't his first, but it was the first that was really publicized uh, and known, and it was uh, called uh, The Delusion of Superproduction. And I've al- alluded to that already in the way that we are driven to produce more and more and more before we can enjoy what we've already produced. And so that is, um, and then Douglas wrote a number of, of books, and uh, the, organ, the, the the movement got a lot of traction, actually. Yeah, that, that of course, keeps up the treadmill. What you described is the very treadmill we it's feel every day. Mm-hmm. And we'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen, with more here on Stop the Presses with Wallace Klink. Stay tuned. 
Owned her decks were guns as big as steers and sails as big as trees. Homeowners, if your lender has gone out of business or sold your transaction to another lender or servicer, you may be the victim of a wrong. Are you sick of censorship? TLB Talk is the cure. TLB stands for truth, liberty, and balance. We are the newest and most unique social media platform to hit the internet. We were built out of necessity because Big Tech, Big Pharma, and Big Brother are out of control. The only thing bigger than them is when we the people are united. With that vision, TLB Talk was born. Our battlefield is in cyberspace. The battle we're in can be won by clicks of buttons and voting with your wallet. TLB Talk has no hidden agendas, no corporate funding, and we do not sell, trade, or give away any of your information. Our platform runs off of generous donations of members and merchandise profits. So please, check out our site. It's the best around. And be sure to stop by our store. It's loaded with items that'll have you feeling a sense of member pride and victory. Come unite with us today at TLBTalk.com and join the social media revolution. What if Extendivite really works, but you find that hard to believe and you spend precious time looking for someone to say, just try it. I have my help today because of Extendivite, and if I did not take a leap of faith and try it, well, I would be on disability today. Take one bottle of Extendivite as suggested for 60 days to find out for yourself. No need to stop any other meds you may be on. You know by now that they are not working for you. Before the 60 days are up, I know that you will feel Extendivite working for you and will want to take another bottle. Life is too short. Get your Extendivite today. Extendivite is available in capsule or liquid form for just $69.95 for a two-month supply. To get started, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with What would you say if I told you we have a new tool that will increase production and lower maintenance costs for your meat processing company, and it would pay for itself in just six weeks? When pigs fly! The new Ease-Off Model EZ4 replaces old spring-style carcass droppers and is faster, safer, and more reliable. The Ease-Off lowers or lifts 1,000 pounds to or from your rail automatically using our remote control. Sounds expensive. Can I afford it? Can you afford not to try the Ease-Off? It installs fast with just three bolts in place of your current dropper. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue and injuries, speed up your line, eliminate downtime, and increase profit. How can I order my EaseOff? Go to EaseOff.com, E-A-Z-E-O-F-F.com, and hurry, because we are offering $200 off on the new Easy 4 for a limited time. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC. Summersville, Missouri. 417-932-6419. Commissioning the symphony in C Which defies all earthly descriptions You'll be commissioning a symphony And returning to Stop the Presses here on the 14th of December 2018 My guest Wallace Klink of Alberta, Canada Talking about economic democracy Uh, Wallace, uh, there's some things I wrote down to talk about today We'll get a lot into the solutions after the ads at the bottom of the hour In about... uh, five, six minutes, mm-hmm. but we can certainly start knocking on the door of that. I've written down uh, a number of things, and um, one of the things relates to what J. Crate Larkin wrote in his book, From Debt to Prosperity. I'll read just a little bit of this. Mm-hmm. 
producers wish to sell, their salesmen offer goods to distributors who dare not buy because they cannot sell to consumers. Shoppers are eager to buy. Many are hungry and cold and homeless, but they cannot eat or clothe themselves or find shelter for they have no money to purchase what the producer wishes to sell them. Mm-hmm. This is the famous paradox, poverty in the midst of plenty. Right. How can you have poverty in the midst of plenty? It's because of a failure in distribution. In other words, as we've mentioned, you know, if you think about nature, there's a balance of nature. In, in engineering, it's called sufficiency. In uh, physiology, it's called homeostasis. There is a balance in nature. Processes just simply occur because of energy applying, applied to materials. And this whole question doesn't come up because it isn't overlaid by an artificial man-constructed system, which we call money. We've tried to reflect our activities by this system of money, but we have not done a good job of it. And it gets worse as we, as we replace labor, as, we men- as I mentioned before. So um, this is um, a very, very serious matter. And we, the economy does not fail on the production side. Modern, the modern world has shown a tremendous resilience on the pr- production side. If, if business can can find markets. It can produce absolute miracles, things that we would have never dreamed of at one time. And, of course, in the primitive economy, most costs were labor, so the, the gap was not nearly as large as it is today. You see, business has internal costs and external costs, A costs and B costs. The A costs are wages, salaries, dividends. Those are paid out to people as income. But there are also costs of doing business. But business has other costs for materials and items that are brought in from previous costing cycles. It does not, those items do not distribute income, but they are a cost. And as the labor component gets smaller and these other technological costs become greater, the gap gets bigger and bigger. So as I said before, the financial system actually works to frustrate or to sabotage the actual economy. It actually sabotages efficiency because efficiency should mean a lowering of prices. We don't have a lowering of prices. We have continuous, continuous inflation, and um, and we should have more leisure. We should not. We should be more relaxed, and we should we should have plenty. And uh, employment should become a smaller and smaller concern as we have the opportunity for a more leisured and cultured existence. Today, everybody's running on this treadmill that you mentioned. They're running faster and faster to try and keep up with their debts, and they're slipping back further and further all the time because every physical efficiency that is made causes a further financial deficiency. It's, it's absolutely irrational. It's quite insane, actually. And, and, uh, an inverse relation between one efficiency and the other. That's right. It's an inverse relationship, and the two should go hand in hand. Efficiency should give you lower prices and more abundance, and access to more abundance is needed if, if the system is to function, because business, all businesses have to recover their costs through sales. And yeah, and what, what, what you're saying there that it's production, the industrial arts, the amazing advances that have been made, particularly in the last 200 years, mm-hmm. have given us no problem on the production side. we got no. plenty of stuff, ladies and gentlemen, but the access to that stuff, the purchasing power, 
Uh, why make a pair of shoes if they're not going to be worn? Why manufacture cars if they can't be purchased and driven? And why have all this debt be standing standing in our way as the only way to get a car? And you get a credit score, you could be denied that loan, and you won't buy that car. That car dealer won't sell that car, mm-hmm. and they wonder why they wonder why GM is cutting back on production in the United States just really recently, one of the major yeah. reasons, and the lady heading up GM said, we're not selling them. We're mm-hmm. not selling the cars. Ladies and gentlemen, people don't have the dough to buy these cars. Students, it ain't fair. Yeah, students today are having to, um, and you know, incur debts, uh, 30, 40, 50, 60, even up to 80 or $90,000 before they graduate. They can't. They can't even qualify for a mortgage, much less uh, afford to get one. Uh, it's. It's. How are they going to get a home? How are they going to ever have a home and to marry and have a family? I mean, it's. When I went to university in the '60s, I shouldn't even mention this, but it cost me about three to four hundred dollars per year for tuition and books. Look at the situation today. I mean, it's, 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 you see these things creep up on people and generations come and go and they don't remember, they didn't have the experiences that previous generations had and so they don't really realize the enormity of what is going on. Thank you, Wallace, for that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after these messages here on Stop the Presses with Wallace Clink and we'll get more into the solutions and probably take a few calls if that's possible. 800-313-9443. On her decks were guns as big as steers and sails as big as trees. You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Real news, real talk, real people. Because you can handle the truth. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Ciroc grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. Here at Republic Broadcasting Network, we have been building our online store. While we have been focusing on bringing you the best talk show host in the country, here at Republic Broadcasting Network, we also want our listeners to have products they can use every day and in times of emergency. We have added new products each week to our store. Your support of this network, plus products at the best prices, is a win-win situation. Check out our new store. Go to our website, republicbroadcasting.org, and click on the online store located at the top of our website. Together, we can continue to grow RBN and help our listeners prepare for the future. 
go to republicbroadcasting.org and click on our online store or call us. 800-724-2719, extension 3. 800-724-2719, extension 3. Have you been looking for a trusted long-term storable food company? We have a solution for you. Simply Clean Foods is dedicated to providing the best quality food you can buy next to fresh from a farmer's market. Our line of resealable fruits, vegetables, and meats are suitable for everyday use, and you won't have to worry about throwing away valuable groceries ever again. Our food is completely GMO-free, and our stringent quality controls, plus testing for heavy metals, makes us unique in the storable foods market. Simply Clean Foods' primary focus is to bring clean food to people all around the world and change the way we look at freeze-dried food in our daily cooking. When you purchase from Simply Clean Foods, not only will you be receiving high-quality food, but you will also be supporting veterans in need across the country and those who are affected by natural disasters. Go to republicbroadcasting.org and click on Long-Term Food Storage in the rotating sponsors' banners to support RBN. Simply Clean Foods. Do it today. It never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside. The show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. Rush, 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 rush. Get your money's worth. Radio show. It happened. And we're returning. To stop the presses here on the Republic Broadcasting Network, 14 December 2018. We're continuing our conversation with Wallace Clank, a monetary reform expert from Alberta, Canada. Call in number 800-313-9443. And uh, Wallace, we were uh, kind of summarizing there before the bottom of the hour. Now we can kind of uh, flip the other side of the coin. We've described the basic dilemma. Now let's get into more of what the solution would look like. And I would submit that it would include what Father Charles Coughlin wrote in his book, Money, Questions and Answers. Uh, One of the fundamental fallacies with orthodox economists is they refuse to recognize that money must exist in a nation and that the power to provide the people with adequate volume belongs to the nation and not to the bankers. That's a very important point, and I do want to stress I I, uh, discussed this with a banker once, and I said, when you make these loans to us consumers, you actually, uh, you you create the money out of nothing, don't you? And this person said, yes, that's true, we do, a little surprise I asked. But anyway, I said, you say you you own that money that you create and lend to us. And we've already discussed the way that the economy is dependent upon the interjection of money uh, issued by the banks in order to make up the deficiency that exists. Now, I said, you you say that you own that money that you create and lend to us. Yes. I said, and well, uh, and then she, I said, and furthermore, and then she surprised me. She said, yes, if you default on your loan, we'll seize your assets. I said, I'm well aware of that. But I said, I'd like to ask you, did you create those assets, those real assets? Uh, no. Do you return those foreclosed assets to the community? Silence. That person came to me a little bit later, some weeks later, and said, what are we going to do about it? Actually, what the banking system is, it's a gigantic, colossal, 
counterfeiting scheme. Now, I can't say it's illegal because our, our corrupt or incompetent politicians issue charters to the banks to do what they do in creating the nation's money supply through debt or as debt. So I can't say it's illegal, but it certainly sounds very immoral. <laughs> yeah, words, well, what, what's, what's, what's legal isn't always moral, and what's moral isn't always legal. We know that one. Well, uh, so came, any, yeah, go you on. Came, if you came to me and said, Wally, I have an upscale car here. I can't quite afford it. It's a little beyond my budget. Could you lend me $30,000? And I said, well, gee, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. So I went home on that weekend, and I printed up 30,000 new notes. And then we saw each other the following week, and I said, are you still interested? And you were, and so we drew up a contract, and they pledged the car as security or collateral on the loan, and uh, I gave you the 30,000 notes, and then you got into problems down the line, and something went wrong with your life, and you couldn't pay me, or you weren't paying me, and I said, well, you know, what's the problem here? I don't want to be miserable, but we do have a contract, and, uh, and, you, and you didn't pay me, so I said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to foreclose on the car. And if you found out where I got the money to lend you, what would you do? Well, the police station is just down the road here. That's counterfeiting. <laughs> I'd, I'd end up in jail. And that is fundamentally what banks do. They create money against the community's wealth and claim the ownership of the money. And that gives them the right to foreclose on the real assets. They're not just accountants. They are actually going far beyond that. And, and that's where the uh, tremendous injustice to the whole system comes. And, of course, you know, you have ups and downs in the economy, the pendulum, pendulum economy. The debts get extended too much, and then somebody fails, and somebody else fails, and the whole thing collapses like a deck of cards. In the meantime, the banks foreclose on assets right, left, and center. It's a, it's a giant um, wealth and power centralizing, collecting, centralizing system. And uh, and people are wrongfully deprived of their efforts and of their property and so on in an alternate way, back and forth. As you so what the, what the governments have done then is essentially abdicated a monetary policy power that they're supposed to possess on behalf of the people. They've, they've handed it out or farmed it out or privatized it by issuing these charters to the banks Mm -hmm. The banks see this as the license to do what you just described. And Douglas spoke of the monopoly of credit. The banks have the exclusive rate, right, ability, and power to create our money supply. And our money supply is not a permanent thing. It's money just it's money is issued as loans and cancelled in repayment of loans. Money is not a thing that's out there circulating around in an independent... The only reason that we have money is because there are unliquidated costs. We have about, what is it, $240 trillion, they estimate, in outstanding debt. Well, that represents costs that have not been liquidated, but that's been carried by debt. There should be no outstanding debt because there is no physical debt. In other words... That money represents income that should have been paid to the consumers so that they can purchase what is being produced without going into financial debt. When I was young, people in the community had personal debts, and that's a long time ago. Well, no. let, let, let me hit let me hit the put the uh, baseball over the uh, center field fence on that one, Wallace. Mm, yeah. I can't stress this enough, and neither can you, mm. ladies and gentlemen. To comprehend that, 
think of the U.S. official national debt. Let's just square it off at $20 trillion. Uh-huh. Uh, The aggregate debt is much more than that, of it course. All, but just looking at what they call the official debt, what if, ladies and gentlemen, what if, and this appears to be the case, that is actually money that's been denied to the economy over the last, say, hundred and some years that the Federal Reserve Central Bank, a private central bank, has been in existence. In other words, there really is no debt. It is characterized as a debt, but what it really is is money, purchasing power, spending power that has been sequestered, taken away from us, and put and offshore or off the grid, you might say, labeled as debt, but what what it really is is the economy has been underpaid. We've all been underpaid and underfinanced uh, to that degree. So that represents frozen purchasing power that's been denied to us. Yes, and the communist will go into the the, uh, producer's premises with a machine gun and say, get out, we're taking over. They expropriate the uh, capital of the nation. However, the financial system does essentially the same thing, but they do it in a much more subtle manner. They do an end run around, and they put a they they place a perpetual mortgage on the communal capital, which gives them technically the right to foreclose on a society. So machine guns are re- machine guns are replaced by bank charters. That's right. Just in the same way that you might say uh, we'll use bullets instead of ballots That's we'll, right. take, we'll take over by force rather than being elected um, that's right it is and uh, but of course it's a much more subtle thing and people tend not to see through subtleties and abstract things as they do things that are concrete easy to hold and see and smell and feel and I mean people are easily unfortunately they're quite easily bamboozled by abstract things quite often and, yeah, uh, and in, ba- in banking and money, uh, you can see it in, in the universities, in K-12 through primary and secondary school, in the media, in the history books. There is obviously an intentional effort to obfuscate and make mysterious the issue of money, the whole concept of money. You are not right. supposed to understand. No, we go by Keynesian economics, essentially. There are some variations and so on that have been proposed, but basically it's a debt system, and that's what Keynes, and ga- Keynes gave us. And Keynes was a Fabian socialist, and the idea was that the financial system should be used gradually to put a chokehold on society and gradually force us into a position where the government has to make more and more expenditures in order to keep things going. That enhances the power of the state relative to the individual. And that is what has been done, and people don't realize what's going on. But many people sense something is wrong, but they don't understand the mechanism mechanism that is at work. So government power and banking power become symbiotic. As one gets more powerful, so does the other. But it seems like the bankers are in the catbird seat, even though both grow more powerful and, of course, more corrupt. But it seems that the bankers are really in charge and that the governments become basically their kneecappers and legal enforcers. We, we go by contract. Contract is legally enforceable, and it, all payments have to be made in money. And the banks have a total monopoly on the issue and cancellation of money, the withdrawal of money. And so that uh, basically okay. they, they re- literally control 
all of our activities when it comes right down to the final analysis. You cannot do anything without money. If you, if you get a loan, the bank will create money. It, it will go into your account, but it is ephemeral. It immediately goes to, you know, it's borrowed for a purpose. It goes to the vendor, and the vendor has an outstanding production loan, and the vendor pays the loan off, and it's canceled. It's destroyed. But now I'm left with a debt, and that debt has to be worked, and I mean worked, out of future, the future economy. That is an inflationary charge that shouldn't be there. Now, on that point, right at this plateau we've reached, we need to talk about how to fill the gap. We've described where the gap came from, sure. what it consists of. Um, and this is where things get a little counterintuitive, maybe from some people's point of view. Mm-hmm. How do we fill the gap if, if there's more and more automation and AI replacing human labor as a factor of production, and we have this gap, and we've described the nature of that gap that uh, Major Douglas uh, discovered and others have expounded upon. So we've talked about in, in social credit economic democracy, not to be confused with this weird Chinese model out there. We'll no. talk about that more in a minute. But we've talked about the National Credit Office. We've talked mm-hmm. about the dividend as a way of filling the gap. So let's let's get into the remedial parts now. Yeah, there's a gap. It has to be filled. Today it is filled by debt. And the banks claim ownership of it, which gives them a lien on the uh, assets of the community. Actually, it belongs to the community. The, the credit that they create belongs to the community. It does not belong to the banks. And um, there is a psychological, a philosophical, a theological problem here, a stumbling block. A lot of people are really, really captivated or dominated by the Puritan ethic, which suggests that no man should eat unless he works. Well, when you've got machines which are willing and anxious, I'm ascribing to them personality, which you can't do, but I mean, the thing of it is they work and they don't get sick. They don't get, they don't complain. They just work. These machines, these automated devices, these robots, I mean, we're failing to pay the wages of the machine to the community. You can't pay wages to the machines, but the machines are incorporated in the cost of goods and services, and that is what causes prices to run ahead of incomes. Well, then why not pay the citizens the wages of the wages of the machines in other words let them take advantage of the efficiencies that they have through their inventions and discoveries uh, managed to uh, develop so um, there's a thing that, in other words we've got to get over this idea that it's wrong to receive something for nothing because nature frankly operates that way you didn't pay for your life your life was given to you there are all sorts of forces and, and uh, materials and things that are given to you. And the sun shines on the earth. We're not charged for it. We breathe the air. We're not charged for it. There's nothing immoral about having something for nothing. When a worm comes along the ground and it finds a morsel and it's hungry, does it freeze with guilt and say, I can't eat this morsel until I go out and do something else to justify my eating the morsel? No, nature and God have given these things to us. So there's nothing immoral. There is something immoral, and there's something downright degrading about holding a job that you don't like, that you don't approve of, and that is producing armaments, the means of destruction, or it's just simply wasting time, wasting your life doodling in an office uh, for no good purpose. That is degrading. 
you should be free as an individual to go about your own self-chosen activities in a, in a state of leisure. It's the wealthy people who have been frequently responsible. They've had time to think, to uh, explore. They have discovered a number of our major, major technological advancements. You don't always get the most out of somebody who's just a drone. You get yeah, something yeah. Else. Human human beings are not machines. We're not meant to be draft horses. And I think this is one of the great stumbling blocks, as you mentioned. People mm-hmm. think that, well, I, I'm proud to be a, a hardworking guy and all that. And labor can have its its benefits depending on what you do and why you're doing it. And sometimes human labor is needed, but. It's not supposed to be an end in itself, ladies and gentlemen. We're not supposed to be simply drones and draft horses. We're not no. supposed to just wor- work our lives away. We're supposed to have time. Time is more important than money. The most important commodity is time, and that means leisure. That means finding who you really are, finding what your real calling is, what your real talents are, and developing mm-hmm. the full personality. So, therefore, to fill the gap, the shortfall that we have found, between prices and debts and the meager income compared to those high prices and debts. To fill that gap, we need, wait for it, wait for it, mm-hmm. the dividend. The yes. dividend. So what is the dividend in this country? Okay. There are some monetary reformers who advocate putting the creation of money completely back in the hands of the state. Well, this is an extremely dangerous thing. In fact, it is one of the central planks of the Communist Manifesto. If you control credit, you control everything. If the state controls credit, state controls everything. It is a very dangerous concept. What we want to do is decentralize the power of money, not concentrate or centralize it. So what we need to do is have the state does have a role to play, but it should break the monopoly of the banks as being the sole creators of credit, and it should create new credits for consumption, which are not uh, registered as a debt. You see, what we do is we, we should make an actuarial, actuarial estimate, uh, a capital account, if you want, of the real productive capacity of the nation. This was done in Alberta, by the way. There's a fairly lengthy document which estimated the actual value of the uh, and ability of the, in, in money terms of the uh, economy to produce. Now, what we have is capital account, and what we do is we should simply deduct from the capital account sufficient money to balance the uh, prices with uh, the, the incomes with prices and keep a balanced price system or economy. And it should be paid to every individual citizen, every bona fide citizen, as a national dividend. I mean, you can tax people by taking money away from them. Is there anything that startling about being able to give people money? Uh, it's simply an accountancy. Of, it's just a functional thing, and it's certainly not complicated. And furthermore, some of the new money should be paid to retailers on condition that they um, lower their prices in order to give people a genuine benefit of real efficiency. In other words, so you'd have lower prices and you'd have greater individual income. If someone's working, their incomes would be supplemented by the dividend. So they're not working, they would be getting a dividend anyway. And that would equate consumption power with, with production power and make the whole system balanced and functional. Today it is 
totally unfunctional. You can see what's going on in the states with the political situation. I, most- I would, I would, I would add that by doing that, you effectively take the market for peddling debt away from the banking cartel. Their market is that gap. If you eliminate <laughs> the gap, their market is gone. They no longer have a gap to fill with their fraudulent debt. Well, they, 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 the banks create money. They should create money for production. Because really, when you get when you take a loan for production, you're simply it's just um, you're just simply t- uh, borrowing from the community, borrowing real assets from the community, and pledging to re- repay. But you have to have a price system which makes it possible to recover your costs, so that you can repay the system and, and keep keep uh, liquidating costs and debts at the rate that they are being created, rather than having them piling up as a burden upon future society so so you would have you would have a basically kind of a revolving loan fund for production it would be easy it would be easy to make make or or honor those payments because there'd be enough money put in the system uh, giving giving the economy homeostasis giving it the balance and Mm -hmm. equilibrium that it needs finally filling the gap so you'd have that revolving loan fund for production you'd have the gap filled in through these periodic dividends paid out to the population, whether the people are working or not. If they're working, it's a supplement to their income. We no longer are draft horses and drones for the right. central state or, or for the usurious banking system. People have more leisure time. They can find their true calling in life. Freedom becomes a reality. I'm just extrapolating here, as opposed to freedom being an abstraction that really isn't quite true, because as long as this defective economic and financial system is in place, Real freedom will never be known. We'll always have this no. sort of this sort of fool's gold freedom that we have now. Right, and you see, you're aware, of course, that the communists have always talked, the socialists have talked about economic democracy. That means the right to have a job and the responsibility of participating in the productive system, which is really backward because it means machines and so on, and technology is taking the role of humans in production. Why would you want to be creating employment? You're working against yourself completely. It makes no sense. And um, so um, there are two different concepts here. When social credit speaks of economic democracy, it means a consumer, a genuinely consumer-motivated economy where the consumers are always armed with sufficient purchasing power to buy what is produced and in doing so to make choices which force upon producers the uh, necessity of producing according to human demand, to consumer demand. In other words, production would be moved in a direction that would serve individual human human people or as consumers instead of being moved increasingly to useless activities just so that we can earn money, not to buy what things which, which we're currently producing and of which our incomes will be a cost, but to buy things that were produced in the past. So you see, we're just... On the treadmill, we're being forced to produce more and more things which are of dubious value and even destructive things in order that we can get the money to buy what we produced in the past. If someone produced a crop, they planted the potatoes and the crop was the season was favorable and they had a great crop and they went to harvest it. And then a third party came along and said, well, that's a lovely crop, but you can't eat it. We can't eat it. Why? We have it. We produced it. No, 
I'm going to request that you make a tank, you build a tank, you manufacture a, a, a bomber, you manufacture a machine gun. That was said, why do you have to, to manufacture a machine gun before you can eat a cabbage that you already have produced? You see, that's a good that, that's a good way of putting it in those tangible terms you referred to. Why mm-hmm. manufacture a machine gun to eat strawberries you've already produced? Exactly. And so, the, so the economy creates all these perverse incentives. Uh, we have uh, fields in England that are full of cars that were never sold. You can actually mm-hmm. look this up online. There are all sorts of products, ladies and gentlemen, that have been made and have never been sold and that are rotting in warehouses. Uh, hard, durable goods, not just mm-hmm. food that, of course, spoils. And, yeah. Wallace, I, I, I don't want to forget to mention again that China is experimenting with some weird um, blacklisting program that mm-hmm. they've dubiously and uh, very unfortunately given the name social credit and i just want to stress that nothing we're talking about today ladies and gentlemen bears any resemblance or has any relation whatsoever to this extremely misguided and unfortunate system that china has given that name and that is a a blacklisting and um yeah a giant surveillance system and it is not it is not social credit it is a system of social credit and debit because, and rewards and punishments meted out by the state according to the way the state judges your conduct and behavior in other words morality no longer inheres in the nature of things it inheres in what the state declares it to be of course communists do not believe in god so they don't have to refer to natural law. They don't like natural law because natural law places a constraint on their arbitrary uh, policies. Uh, yeah, and, and, I, and I would stress that the social credit slash economic democracy we're talking about today is absolutely 100% like a mighty tree rooted in natural law. So it is diametrically opposed to everything China is experimenting with. That's right. And we say... We mean by economic democracy the ability of the consumer, and and the purpose of production is consumption. There is no other. It shouldn't be to keep people busy for no good reason. It simply is. It is aimed at an objective, and that's to produce something, hopefully something that is desired by and useful uh, to to human beings. And if it's not useful or desirable, it shouldn't even be produced. So our whole system is skewed. Our pattern of production is skewed. And Douglas referred to the the pyramid of power. As long as everyone is required to earn their living by their work, and their work is provided by some other entity or a group of individuals, everyone is always looking over their shoulder because their boss is looking over their shoulder to make sure that they're doing what they're told to do. And if you don't do what you're told to do, you are jeopardizing your very material existence. How are you going to feed your family if you lose your job? So the great and irony was- there, the great irony there is that we... The lender has gone out of business or sold your... Hi, Tom Bolton for Ease Off. I know so many of you are finding our EZ4 Carcass Drop and Lift an essential tool for your meat processing operation. But today I want to spotlight four of our new products. 
First are right height hog cradles with steel or aluminum frames. Our customers love this back-saving innovation that enhances sanitation and speeds production. Next are beef cradles with stainless steel or aluminum frames. Eliminate rust and corrosion. We hope you'll compare our quality and prices for this essential part of your processing line. Our cradles are especially effective when used with our power skinner. And finally, our hook tumbler will keep your hooks clean and polished. EaseOff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows, too. EaseOff, LLC, 417-932-6419. This is RBN, the Republic Broadcasting Network. <laughs> 